You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. G'day and welcome to the Switched On podcast. Thanks for joining me. I'm Anne Delaney. And I'd like to acknowledge that Switched On is produced on the lands of the Arakwal people, which is part of the Bundjalung Nation in northern New South Wales. And I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Well, if you've been listening to Switched On in recent months, you know that household energy resources are becoming a big thing. But just how big is only now becoming clear. A new report by the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, IEFA, estimates the energy resources we're installing in our homes and businesses, rooftop solar, electric vehicles, batteries, hot water systems and air conditioners, that they could save Australians a massive $19 billion in energy costs by 2040. But if we want to realise those huge economic benefits, we need some courageous and urgent action to integrate them into our electricity system better. And if we get that right, we have the chance to underpin Australia's future economic prosperity. With lower electricity and transport costs, we can electrify everything and we can eliminate our dependency on gas. Gabriel Kuiper is a specialist in distributed energy resources, DER, and the author of the new IEFA report, and she's my guest today on the podcast. Now, these resources, or assets, are sometimes referred to as DER, consumer energy resources or customer resources. So I started my discussion with Gabriel by asking her to spell out exactly what they are. Distributed energy resources encompass a whole variety of technologies and devices that are usually in people's homes and businesses. At the simplest, it's something like your hot water system, which can be put on or off at different times. Um, As you get more sophisticated, it gets to air conditioners, solar systems, electric vehicles, batteries. Uh, They're basically all of the small-scale energy technologies, generation, storage and flexible demand that are in people's homes and businesses. And so why are they becoming so important for Australia's energy transition? They're becoming important because Australian households love their rooftop solar and they also are increasingly enjoying their batteries, their electric vehicles, their heat pump hot water systems. And as a result, the energy that we talk about being behind the meter in people's homes and businesses, both the energy, the storage and that flexible demand becoming a much, much larger part of the energy system. We're moving from a situation where all the generation was in large coal or gas fire generators in places usually where the coal was, um, Mm. so like in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, to a really significant proportion of energy actually being where people are using it in their homes and businesses. How, How much of it now? That's completely changing the nature of the electricity system and it's 
uh, the other point to make is this is kind of ironic um, because when it started out, we had super, super small um, coal electric light generators. I live just down the road from <laughs> the very first one um, in Redfern in Sydney. So there was a small building, burnt coal, and it generated electricity for the local electric lights. So we were we started off having local energy supplies and we're reverting back to having local energy supplies. So we've now got about a third of households in Australia that's more than any other country in the world on a per capita basis that have got rooftop solar. Um, but we've also got, we've had controllable hot water since the 1950s. Um, so the numbers about where we're at now are large. Where we're going to get to is even bigger. So mm. Anna Collier, who's the chair of the Australian Energy Market Commission, that's the body that sets the rules or the regulations, if you like, in our energy market, she said, look, you know, DR is at least 20% of the solution and we need to be giving it at least 20% of our attention and we're not. I think that's less than half of what the future potential is. We're actually looking at it being more like, you know, at least 40% of future energy supply um, in households and businesses and even more in storage. So the Australian mm. energy market operators forecast for storage suggests that the vast majority at least three quarters, I think up to 82% now on the latest estimates, is behind the meter. So in particularly in um, electric vehicles as well as stationary batteries. So I think we've continuously underestimated how much the, all of these distributed energy resources are going to comprise our future energy system the estimates and the attention being paid is getting better and better but we're still really underestimating the significance of this transition I'll um I'll get to the consequences of that underestimation in a little bit but but tell me this is going to create some issues with the integration of these resources mm. into the grid if we are going to maximise their capacity. Uh, tell me what sort of issues that's creating and, and why integration of these resources is so important. It's funny because um, I give quite a few talks internationally and people are always concerned about technical issues of rooftop solar and the grid. And in Australia, we had a lot of what I like to call technical scaremongering about how <laughs> rooftop solar was going to break the grid. And basically, every single problem that was identified either turned out to be not a problem or we found quite simple, um, but, you know, mm. I'm not saying not important and not significant ways to address it. So... It turns out uh, that we can incorporate, you know, huge amounts of rooftop solar, you know, in some parts of Queensland and South Australia in particular, you're seeing suburbs with, you know, more than 60% of homes have got solar on the grid and it hasn't broken. And there's a couple of things <laughs> that have gone on um, 
that basically we're getting much less of our electricity supply from the grid. So we're actually using our local poles and wires, our local distribution networks less. So there's actually a huge amount of capacity now on those networks. Obviously, at peak times in the middle of the day, there are um, some challenges in some places, but nothing has been as difficult, complex, hard to fix as the original technical scaremongering around DR would have suggested. Mm, That's interesting. So what do you think it's going to do in terms of helping us meet our goals, like trying to get lower electricity and transport Mm. costs and and the electrification of the economy so we can reduce our dependency on gas? There's so many benefits that distributed energy resources provide. Um, The report that IEFA is putting out this week talks about distributed energy resources as the Swiss army knife of energy (laughs) technologies Um, because obviously things like solar panels can provide electricity supply. But what listeners might not know is for an electricity system to work, you don't just need to generate electricity, you also need to store it. You also need to have emergency power supplies. You also need to get keep the frequency stable. Um, that's done through things called ancillary services or frequency control and ancillary services. You also preferably need to make the most of um, flexible demand by paying for demand response at times that it's needed. Um, and um, distributed energy resources can actually also provide distribution network services what I mean by that is they can collectively free up space when the distribution networks are congested so DR when you've got particularly ways of um, aggregating them up so that they're working like a virtual power plant so they're basically coordinated through smart software they can provide you know basically Uh, lots and lots of different services so lots of tools on the Swiss army knife and so they can not only provide the supply from solar panels but also provide all of those other things to have a functioning electricity system. Mm. A lot of people are suggesting that it means that we're not going to need as much large-scale energy resources. Do Do you go along with that view? Absolutely, and I think this is an area where we really haven't done enough research to see what the potential is. Uh, There is a fantastic study out of Beringa, who are consultants who did work for the now abolished Energy Security Board, and they suggested that if you had all of these distributed energy resources and if they were able to... Um, be used in such a way that they could provide some network services, you could get $11 billion worth of benefit. So substituting what you would spend $11 billion less on distribution and transmission networks than you would have otherwise in net value terms by 2040. Yeah, so huge Mm. um, number there and... Uh, At the moment, we're planning for a lot of 
new expensive transmission, but we haven't done, you know, the scenarios, what economists would call the counterfactual in terms of what would happen if we invested more in integrating DER well and how might that save some of the transmission costs. Obviously, that Beringa study did it to some extent, um, but there are a number of reasons why that was relatively conservative. And that exercise in looking at, you know, maximising or optimising the use of the distributed energy resources um, has only partly been done by the Australian energy market operators' planning process called the Integrated System Plan. So I think there's a lot more um, that could be done there. But the Bringer number at least gives us one benchmark mm. to show how much we could save if we have these DR, um, you know, reducing the network costs. Uh, can I just actually drill down into more on the potential economic mm. benefits? Because the the IEFA report has found that there's at least $19 billion mm. Uh, of um, economic benefit by 2040 if we integrate these uh, energy resources into our electricity grid. So how are, how are those benefits estimated or calculated? What, what factors contribute to such a significant figure? Yeah, so we use the Swiss Army knife multiple tools kind of metaphor to look at all the ways in which um, distributed energy resources can provide benefit benefits to an electricity system. The Beringa gives us $11 billion for network services. Then what's fantastic is there's a NERA, who also economic consultants, did another study looking at how wholesale prices might reduce. And they did it on the same time frame to 2040 net present value terms, and they got $8 billion. So when you put those two things together, you get a minimum of $19 billion collective benefits through to 2040. But those numbers are conservative because that doesn't include um, your emergency power supplies. It doesn't include your ancillary services. Um, some of it does include what you might do in terms of flexible demand, but certainly it's an underestimate because most consumers can't be paid at the moment for turning the air conditioners up and down and the like. So, yeah, my, the study looked at all of the available studies of the economic benefits of DER and got $19 billion sort of as a placeholder, but we really need um, a proper study looking at all the possible value streams, and that's another word for the, the tools in the Swiss <laughs> Army knife, um, mm. that distributed energy resources could provide. One of the other figures which really struck me was the, the estimated $10 billion, which was a potential reduction in generator super profits. I mean, how, how will the integration of DER contribute to, to that reduction? It's fantastic you've picked up on that. That was a really insightful number also out of the NERA study. So while they said wholesale um, costs would reduce overall, um, economists don't put cost savings to consumers um, in the same bucket as overall economic benefits. So they looked at like a secondary effect, which is 
what happens when basically your 4 to 8 p.m. peak, so that's the evening time when prices are almost always high, and also other peaks, particularly during summer when prices can go up to over $16,000 a megawatt hour. And their modelling showed that because those peaks would flatten out, um, what I like to talk about is putting the duck curve, which is the name of the curve mm. for what the supply-demand curve um, looks like, um, putting the duck to sleep um, or flattening the peaks. Um, that those Maybe just flesh that out a little bit, Gabrielle. I mean, sure. essentially that duck curve is, for those of us who don't know, is it relates to when we're using solar and not using and not generating solar, isn't it? Yeah. So with the duck curve, you draw a line from um, in the morning um, when there's a small peak when people get up and use electricity and then it dives down in the middle of the day when we're getting all the solar production from large and small scale solar systems and then it comes up again for the head of the duck in the evening and this is what our electricity supply demand curve looks like at the moment but obviously if you get more batteries in the system if you get more flexible demand if you shift around your electricity use so you make the most of the solar in the middle of the day and also store some of it and use it in the evening peak you will essentially um, turn that duck looking curve into a sleeping <laughs> duck curve it will basically be uh, nearly flat and uh, what has been the way the wholesale market works to date is all of the coal and gas fire generators that we've had but also obviously renewable generators recently they've earned all their profits in those peak times and nearer call these the super profits and they will essentially disappear, which is how you get $10 billion worth of consumer savings by 2040. It, it, so it's basically the consumers stopping the generators from milking the whole system, which is what they have been doing for a long time. Yes. And what people might not know is that most of the coal and gas fire generators and also now most of the renewables production is owned by the retailer who has their name on your electricity bill, the big three being Origin, AGL and Energy Australia. So they're known as gen tailors because they're generating and retailing and they're making their large profits by doing those two things together. Mm. So the, the profitability um, will significantly decrease in the wholesale market. And if the market works as it should, that should mean that everyone's electricity bills fall significantly. Now, your ele your electricity bill is only partly the cost of the generation, depends where you are, but, you know, a third to um, sort of 40% uh, or so, but sometimes less. Uh, but that, um, so we also need the network component of people's bills to also come down to reduce bills, but just decreasing the wholesale cost should impact on bills. We've seen a similar phenomenon recently um, whereby the renewables, the solar in particular in the system, but also the wind, has um, brought down bills over the last few years. So this is um, a phenomenon we know 
can happen. What will be different about putting the duck curve to sleep is there'll be far more shifting load um, and far more a far greater role for storage. Mm. So what do you think is going to be the role then of the, the generators and, and the retailers? If we do get this big rise that mm. you're predicting that we could potentially have if, from, from where we are now, how do you think that they are going to respond to this? I think it's fascinating. I did a report a couple of years ago looking at the rise of virtual power plants. And when you take the sort of logic of households and businesses, you know, investing in their own distributed energy resources and making the most of them, then it's logical that they will be buying less and less of their electricity from the grid. And as the profits from the wholesale markets decrease, my conclusion was that the only way that retailers will continue to make significant profits is if they themselves are supporting customers to invest in distributed energy resources and also supporting customers to um, have all of those devices, whether it's hot water systems, air conditioners, um, electric vehicles, uh, and the like, supporting them to participate in markets. So I suggested that the future of retailing was VPP tailing. And I came to that conclusion because I was like, this is the only way that they're going to continue to be profitable. Um, and it, for me, that was quite a striking conclusion. And as I was finalising the report, Origin came out and said, they were going to grow the size of their virtual power plant tenfold in four years. <laughs> so, in fact, <laughs> they were doing that exact business model. They were selling households and businesses, rooftop solar. They were selling them batteries. Um, they've actually got a demand response program in-house as well. Um, they are trying to move to that model to make sure that they're still profitable because of those um, that more and more of people's supply will be um, at their home and business. And do, do you think that that is possible for them, for, for us all to, to move along together, so to speak? Or do, do you think that the, the networks will still uh, try and milk the system, so to speak? So the, um, we need to distinguish here, and it's very confusing because there are so many players in the way our electricity system works, but the, I think the retailers who also traditionally have owned the coal and gas-fired generators but are now owning the renewables and also seeking to have access to people's solar and other distributed energy resources behind the meter, I think the ones that... Um, do that the smartest will be the most profitable and you're already you know seeing that for example with the bid for origin from Brookfield like overseas investors mm. understand they've got a really forward-looking strategy um, that bid failed but uh, I think the Gentiles that don't um, leap on board this uh, will struggle and we've seen you know energy australia's um profitability is struggling at the moment um and i you know 
I don't want to draw too long a bow and say it's all about whether or not these companies have got distributed energy resources as a centre of their business strategy. However, the Origin CEO did say in presentations to shareholders in the market more generally that they could basically set up these virtual power plants for next to nothing, (laughs) Um, you know, because obviously, yes, they need to have the smart software to coordinate all the devices. They have to pay consumers to participate. But you compare that with what it takes to build large-scale wind and solar farms, be dependent on the transmission build often as well. Uh, You know, it's relatively easy. It's much harder in IT terms. And one of the really interesting things I think about the dynamics of distributed energy resources and future uh, electricity systems in general is that we're moving to a world where we're combining energy with IT, with transport. And Mm. so these are becoming heavily IT dependent businesses where before, you know, yes, you had some IT in the billing systems and, um, you know, a few computers at your, um, your power stations, but they really, you know, they weren't using AI or anything like that. All of the really smart IT is now going to be core to how all of these things work. So mm. I think that's really fascinating. It means there's all sorts of really interesting jobs if anyone (laughs) listening (laughs) wants to study computer science and work in energy you know there's going to be jobs for programmers galore you know as if people don't own an electric vehicle they might not know but you update the software for your electric vehicle um, over the net in the same way that your smartphone gets a system upgrade Uh, you know it's quite phenomenal the way in which um, the IT and the uh, energy is coming together. I mean, the ironic thing being both your smartphone and your electric vehicle both have at their heart at the moment generally a lithium-ion battery. Um, Mm. One of those devices has got four wheels (laughs) and can take you places. (laughs) Um, Movable battery? Yeah, but they've both got an enormous amount of sophisticated software behind them. Just looking at that issue about tech, do you think that that is going to help ensure that distributed energy resources will empower consumers or disempower consumers? Look, in the overall, it should absolutely empower consumers because they can set the settings. So you could sign up, say, when you buy an electric vehicle and you could say, it. hopefully in an ideal world, it will give you a choice of what percentage of your battery would you like to retain for an emergency. So if you're living in the inner city, you might need 10% of your battery so you can drive to the nearest hospital should anything happen. But if you're living in a regional area maybe you need enough battery to drive 100 kilometers so you want to reserve 
half of your battery. And then the other proportion of your battery can be made available for to be charged and discharged and earn revenue in a variety of different ways. A variety of the tools in the Swiss Army knife um, could be used for demand response. It could be um, providing frequency control and ancillary services at different times. Some smart company will work out how to make the best use of your battery. You won't need to think about it. You'll just get paid, say, on average, $1,000 a year for having your battery accessible. And I'm hoping that that's how it works, that consumers have control. They can, you know, have the override, or they should, and they should have the override, no matter what it's, um, what the device is. But then they will hopefully also have access to lots of competition through lots of innovative companies that will offer them different value for being having their device accessible for it to be used for um, playing in electricity markets, but they won't have to think about it. Mm. I mean, some people do want to think about these sorts of things and they do want that control. Other people just want to flick the switch, you know, and yes. and, and let it have all, you know, it all be controlled for them. I, I mean, I'm, I'm finding it so fascinating that until recently people – have been focused on the on the cost the the high cost of a lot of distributed energy resources and you know the comments that only the wealthy can afford the solar the batteries mm-hmm. the EVs but it seems that you know things have really turned turning they're turning around now that we're starting to look at how everyone can benefit from them because if we can get this right getting it integrated the these resources integrated into the grid it does mean that a larger percentage of the population can benefit, doesn't it? So the nice thing for me looking at these nine different studies that have been done of the economic benefits is that they all look at overall economic benefits. So you're right, when rooftop solar came out, people were like, well, this is a plaything for the rich. What some of the commentators didn't realise is that while you know, the, it was only some people that could afford to put solar on the roof, then that the people that did so were lowering the wholesale prices for everyone. And the same is true for all of these distributed energy resources. And when we get them at scale with the storage and with the flexible demand, we'll see these billions of dollars of economic benefits for everyone. And that's really important for people to understand that, by people having, you know, little power stations or um, batteries on wheels in their homes or businesses, that that's helping the electricity system as a whole and lowering everyone's bills. So that's really, really important as the first point. The second point, though, is that uh, not everyone can afford to put solar on their roof um, and lots of people are renting uh, and particularly people in social and affordable housing don't have access to that kind of capital and potentially the organisations that run social or public housing don't have the capital. And that's where it's Mm. really important for governments to step in and subsidise installations on those properties. And Mm. fortunately, we're seeing that happen now, partnerships between 
the federal government and the states. It's only happening at a really relatively small scale at the moment and it massively needs to scale up. But even what's been done so far uh, shows how significant the benefits um, can be for those consumers. Mm. Um, I mean, you're... can I, I make one other point that people that I think is so, so important in the debate about equity on energy is that the best thing that we could do in Australia to lower the electricity bills for the people who can least afford it is not actually an energy policy. It's a housing policy because mm. we've got such poor quality housing stock and because mm. when you rent or buy a home, unless you live in Canberra, in the ACT, you can't find out how it's rated. So what the thing that would make the biggest difference to energy equity, energy poverty in Australia is having minimum rental housing performance standards. So just like, you know, we have minimum standards if you buy a fridge, you can't buy in Australia, you know, a crappy, very energy intensive fridge. We've outlawed them. We've said there must be a minimum standard for the energy performance of your fridge. We don't have a minimum standard of energy performance of your rental housing. Mm. And given that renters can't change the fabric of their home, they can't put solar on the roof, they can't change the hot water system. If we put that in place, that would make an enormous amount of difference. And I know there's been a huge number of people campaigning on this for a very long time, plus having minimum, um, sorry, having uh, mandatory disclosure at point of sale or point of lease would also really help. But I think it's vitally important for people to understand not all the solutions to energy sit in energy policy sometimes they sit elsewhere and that housing one is super super important and it would also make a big difference in terms of the health consequences because living in a house that for example is too cold in winter is very bad particularly for people with chronic health conditions. It's definitely time for minimum standards for for rental accommodation and uh, mandatory disclosure. And as you say, a lot of people have been working on this for some time. But uh, I mean, hopefully the hopefully the culture is is shifting. And I, I mean, sh- obviously that's one of the things that you think policymakers and stakeholders should do, and urgently. What else do you think? is needed to ensure effective integration of um, uh, distributed energy resources into the energy system. And you won't be surprised that I have a significant list, but I'll try and make it (laughs) easy by breaking it down into three areas. Um, The first is there are technical changes that we need to make. So we need to get Um, the technical standards in place for distributed energy resources and we need a body that's got responsibility for that, which doesn't exist currently. Um, So just as an example of that, can we take bi-directional charging, which we have the tech for EVs to charge back to the grid or back to the home, which would allow people to use their EVs as big movable batteries. I mean, what needs to to make that change happen? Yeah. Yeah, perfect example. We have no body 
as in no organisation, currently responsible for planning for implementing and ensuring compliance against those technical standards. Um, this has been discussed, I wrote a piece for Renew Economy uh, about <laughs> how it had been discussed for over three years and we're still not there yet. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, it sounds very boring, but the technical is the starting point until you get, until you have those technical standards in place, then people can't earn any money from feeding back into the grid in that way. Mm. So that's the first technical one. The um, second technical one is um, what's known as technically as dynamic operating envelopes. And some listeners might have heard of this as flexible exports. It's the idea that the grid is only congested a very small amount of the time. So most households, when they get solar systems installed, they have a limit on what they can export of five kilowatts. However, the average system size being installed now is over nine kilowatts. So there's a whole lot of value being left on the table, i.e. households aren't getting their return on investment because the distribution networks have these flat export limits. However, South Australian power networks pioneered the idea that you could increase that limit from 5 to 10 kilowatts at times where there was capacity on the grid. When I first heard about this, I was like, fantastic you know maybe 60 if you were lucky 70 percent of the time you get a double export limit and what south australia power networks have found through modeling is that their prediction is that they will be able to give households double the amount of export 98 percent of the time wow so it will only really be in spring when the grid's congested, that they will have to reduce that. So mm. South Australian Power Networks have got that in place. It's in place in a small amount of places in Queensland, um, but it's really, it should be universal across the NEM and the Western Australian WEM, um, and it's not. Um, I don't understand why the other distribution networks haven't put it in place as fast as possible, given the benefits for consumers, but they mm. haven't. Uh, third technical one is fixing the challenge of voltage. This is, this is one where there was a lot of technical scaremongering. People told me rooftop solar is causing voltage rise on the grid. And the prop, that's a problem for managing local electricity networks. However, when I was at the energy, working with the energy security board, we commissioned fantastic research from the University of New South Wales and they found their existing high voltages in the grid and that's for two reasons. One, because uh, we have in Australia gone from 240 to 230 volts and we've also um, had high voltages in order to support the use of air conditioning during the boom in the sort of 2000s when lots of people installed large ducted air conditioning systems. Anyway, the Victorian government have acted on this and they have worked with their, their distribution businesses, the poles and wires companies in Victoria, and started to bring down the voltages and actually calculated 
that this would save consumers millions of dollars every year. And so that also needs to happen across the electricity network. Mm. I mean, Gabriel, all, all of these changes in policy, planning, regulations, they're, yeah. they're only going to happen if we actually treat distributed energy resources on the, on the same terms as we do large-scale mm. energy generation, isn't it? Yes, I think DR's very much been seen as a poor second cousin. I mean, partly that's just a legacy issue. People were used to dealing with big generators. You know, we, there was a switch from thinking about generation in terms of coal and gas to thinking about in terms of large wind farms and large solar farms and people, you know, with the background in energy engineering could sort of make that transition. And then I think for a lot of people in the area, sort of rooftop solar came out of nowhere and people didn't expect it to become so popular and so pervasive. Uh, and we're still playing catch up. Um, as I said, it's improving, but there's still a very long way to go to give the focus and the policy and regulatory support and empowerment around distributed energy resources that we need. Mm. So just a final question, Gabrielle, how hopeful are you that we can get this right, that we can get to realise this, the potential huge economic benefits that you've you've outlined through integrating all these distributed energy resources? I think there's a lot to do. I've only mentioned the technical challenges. We also have some regulatory changes we need. We also need to change the way our markets operate. The good news on all of these things uh, is it's not like world peace. We do know how to do <laughs> all the things that we need to do. Um, like there are clear changes that would um, massively assist uh, I mentioned Anna Collier, chair of the AMC, the market um, rulemaker, has said that they all of the market bodies need to pay more attention to distributed energy resources. So I think there's some sort of new enthusiasm and commitment from the market bodies, which is fantastic. There's certainly a lot of commitment uh, from politicians across the country. They understand that Australians love their rooftop solar and that this is an important part of the solution. So I think we've got the solutions, we've got some enthusiasm from the market bodies, we've certainly got some political and policy support, but we just need to ramp up the implementation. I think we've had a lot of plans and we need to really get on with the doing and make sure that we do it fast enough. I remember years mm. ago, I think it was Mark Vincent from South Australian Power Networks who was like, you know, explaining how distribution networks sort of didn't see the air conditioning boom coming. They didn't see the solar boom coming and he was just hoping <laughs> that they got things together and planned in time for the EV boom. <laughs> and I think 
that's where we're at is it's now's not the time to say well we need to think about this a bit more we now just need to speed up the pace of change and get a lot more resources and smart people in working on uh, the integration of distributed energy resources. We do indeed. Gabrielle Kuiper, thank you so much for joining the Switched On podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciated all your thoughtful questions, Anne. And Gabrielle Kuiper is a specialist in distributed energy resources and she's the author of the new IEFA report, which is titled, as a convenient reminder, DER could provide $19 billion economic boost by 2040. Well, that's it for another Switched On podcast. Next time we'll focus more on what the federal government needs to be doing in their next budget to help us all electrify faster. I'm Anne Delaney. See you then.